Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. Today's episode is part of a series on Congress. Last spring, the Gray Center hosted a research roundtable for new papers on Congress and administration. We called it First Branch, Second Thoughts. Now, months later, we're bringing the authors back to discuss their papers with thoughtful commentators. Papers, including the one we're discussing today, are available on the Gray Center's website in our working paper series. So it's my pleasure to welcome today's guests. Let me start with Professors Abby Gluck and Jesse Cross, who authored the paper we're about to discuss. Abby Gluck is a professor at both the Yale Law School and the Yale Medical School, and she directs Yale's Solomon Center for Health Law and Policy. She also has deep experience in government, having served in the United States Senate for Senator Paul Sarbanes, the state of New Jersey for Governor John Corzine, and the city of New York for Mayor Michael Bloomberg. She really is one of the leading figures today on questions of health policy and Congress and administration. Abby, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Adam. Professor Gluck's co-author is Jesse Cross. Jesse is an assistant professor of law at the University of South Carolina, where he writes and teaches on legislation, health law, and conflict laws. Professor Cross also has experience in government. He served as, as a counsel in the United States House of Representatives Office of the Legislative Council, a nonpartisan office where he worked on legislation related to Medicare, the Affordable Care Act, among other issues. Jesse, welcome. Thanks, Adam. I'm thrilled to be here. And finally, we're joined by Professor Josh Chaffetz of Georgetown Law. Josh is a leading scholar on Congress and the Constitution. His books include Democracy's Privileged Few, a study of legislative privilege in the United States and British constitutions, and most recently, Congress's Constitution, Legislative Authority and the Separation of Powers. Josh, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. The article we're here to discuss is titled The Congressional Bureaucracy, I suppose the natural place to start, Abby, is with the basic question, what is the congressional bureaucracy? So thank you, Adam. Thanks, Josh, for commentating on this. And thank you to the Gray Center for supporting the paper and for the wonderful discussion uh, that helped us formulate our ideas earlier this year. Um, so I want to start uh, to answer your question by talking about what motivated the paper, why we think it's important. And then I'll try to highlight some of the main takeaways. It's very long. Sorry, Josh. And uh, well, I'll cry, so I won't be able to cover it all. So for the past decade or so, Jesse and I have been on something of a mission that is at once a civic education mission and also sort of a legal doctrinal legitimacy mission. And that mission is to get lawyers and courts to understand how Congress works and how Congress drafts statutes. So as we all know, statutes are the vast majority of federal law today, but somehow the theories and doctrines of statutory interpretation don't take into account the basic structures and rules of congressional drafting. Jesse and I feel this is very odd for at least two reasons. First, virtually all judges claim that the law of statutory interpretation is somehow connected to Congress. Judges claim to divine congressional purposes behind statutes, or they use default rules of statutory interpretation, so-called canons, that either aim to approximate how Congress works or are claimed to be shared conventions who shadow Congress drafts. My own previous empirical work with Lisa Grassman at Vanderbilt has undermined the validity of a lot of these assumptions. So, for example, courts assume that Congress drafts using words consistently across the U.S. code. That's just not the case. So we need to think of a different theory of Congress to justify our interpretive doctrines. Second, we feel it's odd and even a little hubristic for that courts could go about this endeavor without even trying to learn how Congress works. It's especially strange given administrative law's fascination 
with agency structure and processes. Statutory interpretation is now taught in most law schools. Legislative process is hardly taught in any. So this piece, the congressional bureaucracy, takes work that Jesse and I have done previously and goes a lot farther. Uh, We've done work before on how committees and policy staff draft statutes and how the nonpartisan drafters in Congress, the houses of House, the offices of House and Senate Legislative Council, how they draft. But here we go further and we explore 11 congressional institutions that are all of the nonpartisan drafting supports in Congress. We interview 40 staffers for this project and also rely on previous interviews of about 30 others. So we look at these are the institution, legislative council, the nonpartisan drafters, the parliamentarians in both chambers, the Congressional Budget Office, the Joint Committee on Taxation, the Congressional Research Service, the Government Accountability Office, the Office of Law Revision Council. They're the, cod- the codifiers who organize and edit the code, and MedPAC and MACPAC, which are the research and policy arms for Medicare and Medicaid legislation. So we theorize here what it means for Congress as a whole to have this bureaucracy. What does that tell us about how statutes are made? and how to think of them. I want to say at the outset that these are things that judges of all stripes can think about. These are not subjective, intentionalist kinds of outputs. These are formalist outputs that Congress ex ante through its rules puts in motion, right? Congress tells us CBO score must proceed, uh, must accompany all bills. Congress gives the parliamentarians authority to do their job and so on. So we argue that textualist formalists should be as attracted to these as they are to dictionaries and policy defaults that arguably have very little connection to Congress. So now I'm just going to step back and to make give you the big highlights uh, of the operation. So first, um, there's a really interesting separation of power story that we're very excited to tell. So in researching the history of these 11 institutions, we found this amazing common thread. All of them, founded in different periods, the 20s, the 40s, the 70s, were founded as an effort to reclaim power from the executive branch that had been taken over all sorts of aspects of the drafting process, from the drafting of legislation to the research of legislation to the budget process. Um, For administrative law scholars, this should be extremely interesting because in administrative law, the standard story is Congress trades power away in exchange for the expertise that agencies give Congress. But in our story, Congress creates its internal bureaucracy of nonpartisan expert institutions to reclaim power from the executive. Also fascinating is an internal separation of power story that we're telling. So look, Congress could have created all of these nonpartisan expert offices in the offices of the majority, in the office of the speaker. But instead, it didn't do that. It decentralized power internally, giving minority, majority, speakers, juniors, seniors, members of Congress alike access to these supports. It's not the case that budget, the budget impact of statutes is scored by the Speaker of the House. Wouldn't that be very different? It's not the case that the Speaker gets to control the parliamentary rulings. Wouldn't that be very different? So the fact that this decentralization of internal power has continued, even in this hyper-partisan era of gridlock, for Jesse and I, really gives us um, some optimism about the legislative process. So the final area in which we hope to intervene is in the ongoing debate over statutory interpretation. We've had this cycling debate for 30 years now between purposivism and textualism. And over the last several, over the last decade, some scholars, including Jesse and myself, have tried to push this debate into a new era. Right? We're trying to question both sides about their purported links to Congress and push them to ask what justifies their theory if it's not a link to Congress. Um, so we have a couple of big takeaways from this. 
Our interviews corroborate first that the old-fashioned schoolhouse rock textbook legislative process is dead. Ann O'Connell and I in previous work detailed the rise of what we call unorthodox lawmaking, taking the term the late political scientist Barbara Sinclair. Our nonpartisan actors corroborated that account. Jesse and I are arguing here that there are two sides to this coin. On the one hand, even though Congress is much more unorthodox and lots of stuff is happening rushed behind the scenes and not visible, those nonpartisan experts, our congressional bureaucracy, are still doing their work, even if it's not as apparent to the public. Again, we think that gives a cause for some optimism about the deliberative nature of the legislative process, even in this very challenging time. Second, though, on the other hand, these unorthodoxies, as our staffers corroborated for us, really create some challenges for courts. Um, some of these were brought out in previous work, and these interviews just corroborate that. For so example, the big ones. Statutes don't go to conference committee anymore. Conference committee is the stage where gaps are filled, mistakes are corrected. Courts now have to deal with statutes that have mistakes, that weren't cleaned up. The Affordable Care Act is a great example of this. But the courts have not yet really developed coherent documents to deal with those mistakes. Statutes have a lot less legislative history or recent legislative history now because of the use of omnibus bills, special uh, procedural mechanisms, um, and the lack of the sustained committee and floor process that we had before. Those kinds of things and much more are going to affect the way courts are going to interpret. So finally, um, we offer some more concrete takeaways. Our main point here is that Congress is an it, just as it is a they, and it can act collectively to set up these internal rules and processes. And we should respect those internal rules and processes and outputs that Congress commissions for itself in a formalist way. So we offer some new canons and some anti-canons. So in previous work, I introduced something that I call the CBO canon, which is an assumption that when a statute is ambiguous, it should be construed in accordance with assumptions made by CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, when it released the budget score. The budget score is a very salient output of Congress. Numbers are focused on it. They draft to get a statute uh, within a certain projected or desired score. So the argument is that if a court try, is trying to resolve an ambiguity, the CBO score is at least as good of an input as legislative history, dictionaries, canons, and so on. Since then, other scholars have suggested other similar canons, like a joint tax canon, a parliamentarian's canon. And Jesse and I endorsed those with some additional nuances that we add in the paper. We also have some anti-canons. We want to strongly advise dumping canons based on consistency across the U.S. code. That is simply not the way Congress drafts. Congress is organized into subject matter areas. It does not think about the code holistically. We also want to raise big questions about reliance on statutory organization and grammar. And we do this in the paper through a very deep dive into the Office of Law Revision Council. I'm not going to detail that here. I'm happy to talk about it in the Q&A, but it's a really fascinating aspect of the paper. The Office of Law Revision Council is perhaps the least known of all of the nonpartisan institutions in Congress, but it is very important. It has the role of taking the public laws that Congress passes, pulling them apart and reorganizing them in the 54 subject matter titles of the U.S. Code. That process includes authorization to add words, rearrange provisions, insert grammatical changes, and so on. This is shocking to most lawyers and judges who learn it because the Law Revision Council's work occurs after the statute is enacted. This is post-enactment editorial work that really affects the way that we encounter the U.S. Code when we open it on the page. So the question is, should we really rely as much on statutory organization as we do or grammar? And should we maybe rely more on the purposive words and statutes? 
Congress enacts purpose clauses all the time in its statutes. The Office of Law Revision Council edits those out and puts them into statutory notes, and they're allowed to do. But what that means is that when we open up Westlaw, we don't see truly half the words in the U.S. Code. It's been now empirically determined are now in the notes in some way. So we're getting a skewed impression of what the U.S. Code looks like because we're not aware of how the Office of Law Revision Council works and what it does. Um, the last takeaway is that we really want to push back against the idea that recourse to legislative history is um, somehow evil because it's a reliance on staff. It's an undue delegation. The fact of the matter is that everything Congress does relies on staff. Our paper shows that from start to finish, soup to nuts, the drafting of the words on the text are as much the work of staff as the work of drafting of legislative history. So, yes, we know we're complicating the landscape, but arguably courts have already complicated the landscape for themselves with their many canons and other rules that they've constructed. This is just a different set of structures and one that we think uh, is more democratically accountable. So I'll stop there and look forward to your questions. Well, that's a, a extremely helpful overview. Thank you for all of that. Uh, I have just a couple of questions maybe to, to, to offer a little more context to the, to the project. Uh, Jesse, Maybe could you describe the, the methodology of, of this paper? Having mentioned interviews, how did you go about the actual work of, 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 of researching this paper? And, and Jesse and Abby, what were the greatest surprises that you encountered as, as you sort of unpacked this for all for yourself? Yeah, and I think uh, for Abby and I, as she mentioned, we both have done um, several research projects in the past, um, talking to people in Congress and um, conducting interviews, trying to get a sense of the institution and of its many facets, because it is a big institution and there are a lot of perspectives inside it and a lot of perspectives on it. And so we've steadily been doing that work. And as we did, this collection of nonpartisan offices was more and more on our radar as something that we thought its importance inside the institution was not getting the attention it warrants outside the institution. And so that led us to um, reach out to these offices to try to do what we could to uh, have interviews and conversations with them where we would gain a deep sense of how they work. Um, also with other people in Congress who don't work in these offices, we didn't want to have a skewed vision of just the, these offices kind of inflating their own importance. We wanted to get a real sense of how people outside the offices viewed them. Um, to see if they really were providing the benefits they claimed or if they really were as trusted or relied upon as they claimed. And um, so we did a lot of that interview work and then kind of tried to step back and square the picture we received from those interviews with the conversations we saw happening out in the scholarship about these offices and tried to say, what are the pieces that really people are missing? Um, and that, that led us to the conclusions, Abby, flagged. So, Adam, to your question about what was surprising to us, um, I think a lot of things were surprising, but a lot were what we expected, I think. I think, As I said before, um, Jesse worked in Congress uh, longer than I did and worked in one of these nonpartisan institutions. So he was not as blown away by the Office of Law Revision Council as I was. But I think Jesse can attest that there was a lot of, oh, my God, coming from me throughout <laughs> the uh, – and, 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 and actually, I think that and I think that everyone we have – virtually everyone outside of the nonpartisan institutions, including those policy staff that Jesse mentioned, who we talked to about OLRC, had the same 
I didn't know that and maybe I really should. So that role of codification and how different the codified U.S. code looks from the public laws that are enacted, I think has been to me a life-changing event in the way that I do statutes. Like truly pulled the ground out from the way. It also has made me, for one, think very differently about the timeline or the time boundary which, as the, between the moment of the vote and afterward. Uh, I come out of our work with a much more deconstructed and maybe provocative uh, vision of what lawmaking is and what even a statute is, that it continues uh, from the process of drafting to enactment. But after enactment, um, so much happens that affects the statute before the public even sees it. So that, to me, has been you know, one of the most surprising things. Maybe if you could give us a sense of time. Obviously, the, this bureaucracy has evolved over time. There are a lot of changes that have happened in the last, say, 30 years in Congress. One of the other authors in this sort of mini-series, Philip Wallach of AEI, wrote his paper on the evolution of, of Congress from 1981 to today. And we talked a little bit about, in, in our podcast in that series, we talked a little bit about uh, the ways in which Congress, its, its own structure and organization and operations changed it during the speakership of Newt Gingrich. Um, but could you maybe situate some of these, uh, some of these aspects of the congressional bureaucracy in, in, in sorts of time and how, how they're changing or evolving? So we, we tried to at least give a, a brief history of the evolution of these offices in the paper to sort of tell that story of how they evolved. And the story we found really kind of focuses on three periods. Um, you have a progressive era in which a number of these offices are first created, kind of growing out of good governance projects of that time period. And then you have the 1940s and the 1970s, when more of these offices are either created or expanded. And it's in those two periods in particular, the 40s and the 70s, where you see this emphasis on separation of powers that Abby talked about before, too, that um, the, the offices there are growing not simply out of a desire for good governance, but specifically a desire to respond to the growth of the executive branch. And to give Congress, there's one... Uh, member of Congress who described it as uh, building a bureaucracy to fight a bureaucracy. You know, that that's the idea that, that if Congress is going to retain its influence and authority in the government as the administrative state expands, it needs to have its own in-house expertise. And that's the story we sort of see in particular in those, those moments of important growth in the 40s and the 70s. And then there is a fourth period that, as you mentioned, we, we don't spend quite as much time discussing, but fourth period is the 1990s. This is when you have the Gingrich Revolution in 94, right? And here the impulse is different from the first three periods in the sense that it is toward shrinking or eliminating these offices. So during this period, you have OTA, the Office of Technology Assessment, is eliminated. Uh, GAO and CRS both undergo staff cuts during this time. There's some shifting of priorities that results from that within the offices. And we tell the story in the paper, on the one hand, of those reductions, which are real, but then also uh, the other side of the coin, which is that other than OTA, all the offices did survive that. Um, they, they survive and they don't, as Abby mentioned before, get folded into the partisan machinery in Congress, despite the fact that this was a period where there was a real energy to clean the decks inside Congress and real energy to kind of centralize power under partisan leadership. And these offices, despite that, 
were for the most part able to remain independent, nonpartisan power centers that continued to have that internal separation of powers dynamic that Abby discussed. And so we look at that fourth period and see kind of two sides. On the one hand, reductions that were real and really did impact the extent of the work these offices could do. But then on the other hand, um, kind of a story of survival that led us to, to try to tease out what are the traits of these offices that have made them endure, even though they serve at the pleasure of Congress and Congress's desire for bureaucracy has shifted over time. Well, there's so much more that I, I want to ask you, but more than that, I want to hear what Josh has to say. For our listeners who aren't familiar with Josh's work, they ought to be. His book on Congress's constitution is just a much a must read. It looks at so many of Congress's less studied powers. It's uh, power of the purse, it's contempt power, it's power of, of internal discipline and so on. It's just a fascinating study of Congress. And so when it came time to, to plan this podcast, first person I thought of whose you know, views I wanted to hear about this paper were Josh's. So Josh, what are your thoughts on the paper? Thanks so much, Adam. And, and thanks to, to Abby and Jesse for what really is just a fantastic paper. It's, um, uh, I, I think there's, you know, I learned something on almost every page. I, I think uh, it would be it would be almost uh, impossible for anyone to to read this paper and not learn just a tremendous amount from it. Um, and I love, of course, uh, as well the impulse to uh, take congressional internal organization seriously to think about uh, the ways in which Congress is simultaneously both a they and an it. The way uh, you know any corporate body is simultaneously both a they and an it. Um, and I think this is uh, a really important project in, in sort of getting uh, beyond that initial impulse, but but just into the into the weeds in a in a really good way. Um, I also like the the sort of focus on um, the development of these agencies as a pushback to growing executive power. Um, you know, you see this in in uh, in exactly the three periods that Jesse mentioned. Right, you see it in the twenties, especially with the the Budget Act, which you know is often understood as something that created the you know era of presidential dominance in the budget process. But in fact, also, you know, at the same moment, you see this impulse, okay, we're going to give, but we're also going to take away, or we're going to give, but we're also going to create some sort of oversight mechanism, Uh, and not just mechanism, but the oversight infrastructure. Um, And that's, that's just hugely important. You see it um, uh, again, in the 1946 Act and the 1970 Act, right? It's not a coincidence that the 1946 Act is in 1946. Same year as the Administrative Procedures Act, that's certainly true. But also, you know, immediately after the end of World War II, um, and one of the things that characterized uh, World War II was uh, the growth, you know, domestically, was the growth of the executive branch. Um, and in particular, uh, Congress during World War II perceived itself as being unable to oversee the growing executive branch, and in fact relied on borrowed staffers frequently from the executive branch to conduct oversight. And then immediately after the war, you get these these hearings uh, that ultimately lead to the Reorganization Act, where, where you have members saying, look, uh, it's just a conflict of interest to ask these executive branch folks to oversee themselves, right? So um, uh, you really do see this um, uh, sense in which the congressional bureaucracy is created not haphazardly, but intentionally and with a sort of consistent purpose even across time. Um, I also really want to commend the stuff on uh, the Office of Law Revision Council. Um, uh, both this and uh, another article by, by Jared Shoby that, that does a, a deep dive into OLRC, I, I think we'll just, uh, you know, I, I, I had Abby's reaction to all of this. Uh, it's just absolutely shocking. And it's, um, you know, Abby said that it, it sort of uh, pulled the, the ground out from under her. And I think that's right because it, it destabilizes uh, what we think of as the time frame for when and how legislation is produced. 
it destabilizes our notion of what a statute is. Um, it destabilizes our notion of what the sort of, you know, what the boundaries of text are. Um, these are, you know, that's really sort of incredible stuff. And, and, um, uh, and on a sort of selfish level, it, it sort of validates my instinct to always start with the statutes at large rather than with the U.S. code. Um, but, you know, I think that's, that's something that, that, uh, uh, lawyers, judges, and scholars really need to, to grapple with. Um, the, the, the first sort of question I wanted to, to pose actually follows on something Jesse was just talking about, which is this period in the 90s uh, where these agencies get uh, get shrunk and get and, and come under sort of sustained attack from uh, the Gingrich Revolution. So you have, as you say, OTA that disappeared. Um, you have CRS, which, you know, at its high point is around 850 staffers. Now it's just over 600, I think. You have GAO, which at its high point is around 5,000 uh, people, and now it's under 3,000. Um, so, you know, I, I guess part of one of my, my big question is, is well, and I, I should say it's not, not even just numbers, right? Uh, in that sense, it's also, um, uh, you know, pay doesn't really rise during that period. So um, I think for both people in these support agencies and also for uh, member and committee staff pay is lower in real dollars than it was about 20 years ago. Perhaps unsurprisingly, tenure is shorter. Um, uh, so, and, and, um, you know, you see this uh, a lot in DC. The kind of people who used to spend, spend a career at someplace like CRS, a lot of them have decamped in the last five or six years to, um, to think tanks and places like that. Um, and, you know, part of the reason why is, when you talk to them is, is something like, well, um, you know, we just didn't have, you know, even leaving pay aside, we didn't have the time to sort of sit and think about things the way we used to, right? It used to be a more interesting job, but now with the staff reductions, we don't have, you know, it, it's just much less interesting. So I'm wondering sort of this, this hollowing out of these, well, hollowing out maybe too extreme, um, but this reduction in capacity, you know, I'm wondering sort of what that, how that complicates your story um, and, and um, whether you think it's the sort of thing that, that, that really presents a, a significant problem uh, um, and, and, you know, whether you think it's the sort of thing that ought to be, to be reversed. Um, that was sort of one question I had for you. Another question I had for you was about this issue of, um, uh, you know, one of the things I really like is, is you talk about the, the, the existence and continued functioning of the congressional bureaucracy as being uh, a reason for optimism about Congress, or at least a reason for not accepting the most pessimistic sort of common picture of Congress. Um, and uh, that sounds right to me, but I wonder um, if there's a way to make this sort of uh, more public facing, right? So I think about um, work like uh, Elizabeth uh, uh, Morrison and John Hibbing, uh, Congress as Public Enemy, where they talk about the sort of the more people see of Congress, the less they like it. Um, I, I wonder if there's a way to use the congressional bureaucracy as a, as a public argument for Congress, or is that sort of necessarily doomed to fail? Why don't we start with the first question on, on, on the hollowing out of, of the institutions? I don't know who'd like to start with that. Jesse, do you want to take that one? I, I, let me just make, make a couple of factual assertions, then you can talk about that maybe. The, um, so I think GAO, Jesse will correct me on that. I think GAO at its high point had 15,000. All right, Jesse, it's not 15,000 employees. So it's not even five to three. At one point, it was an enormous institution. It was really just a fascinating figure. Um, I also, you know, why Josh's comments are so great. And I think I want to pull out something, one or two things from them, which is he kept mentioning people want to have time to reflect. I think what's embedded in that comment is most of the people who work in the congressional bureaucracy have advanced degrees. They're PhDs. Uh, they're real specialists. They're real academics. We were, uh, I was very impressed uh, in learning sort of 
who's there, who composes. These are not sort of low-level bureaucrats. These are people who do you know, study for years and decide to bring their talent to Congress. So that is really interesting. And, I, and the tenure, uh, even if it has gone down, uh, I don't have those figures about recent tenure drops, but the figures that we have about the current average tenure, something like a dozen years in a lot of these agencies, that's still very long, especially when compared to the sort of young, transient, flighty uh, political staff. So I think that's interesting. I believe the GAO numbers you referenced there, I think it's in the late 40s, they peak around 15,000 people, which is remarkable to think about. And then, yeah, you get to the Gingrich era, they're down to in the 5,000s, and subsequent to those cuts, they get close to where they are today, which is around 3,000, right? And, you know, they may provide a good case study for thinking about this question about how much they these offices were hollowed out uh, or, or really kind of undermined by, by those cuts. You know, the GAO, uh, I believe Ann O'Connell's written about this, that it really did lead to a shift uh, in their work or was around the same time when we see a shift from they used to be much more self-initiating with their projects, right? They used to be able to look for where they thought there was need for oversight and to pursue it. And as they got leaner, they become more responsive. They mostly now look into things that Congress requests they look into. Now, some people would say, great, they're more tethered to Congress, right? But other people would say, well, they used to do both, and now they're just doing one, right? So it did have a real impact on their work. Um, the flip side of that is that, you know, even GAO, every month right now, you see a news story of another report they came out with that has real consequence and that has real political bite uh, in the moment, right, um, of oversight of the executive branch. So they're still even though they're smaller than they were and certainly smaller than they could be, they are still providing pretty serious inputs into the public discussions and into the legislative process. And in terms of those trends, I think also some of the, some of the smaller offices that we look at, I don't know, have seen the same types of number changes. For example, my guess is Legislative Council is probably bigger than it's ever been. Um, and so, so that, that trend is not entirely uniform in the numbers either, but, but it's a good point. I know, you know, Josh, you've done tremendous work, both in your scholarship and also with the APSA task force kind of flagging these issues of how these offices rely on having the funds and the force to go out and recruit, as Abby said, very credentialed, smart, expert people. And to keep them for a long time, I think the tenure piece is so important because these offices really provide the institutional memory in Congress, particularly as the partisan staffs end up having, as Abby mentioned, more and more kind of rapid turnover. They're the only people who can say, hey, we've tried writing a bill exactly along these lines 20 years ago, and let me tell you the problems that we ran into so that you can learn from that and make better legislation this time around. You need someone who can do that. And moving from institutional memory to, to institutional credibility with Josh's second question about, about how this research might impact people's understanding or understandings of, but also, I guess, opinions of or appraisal of con Congress as an, as an institution. Sure the public facing optimistic story of Congress. So uh, let me just say sort of three things about that. The first sort of ties a bridge from Jesse's comment to mine, which is that um, even in this maybe potential hollowing out, I, I really want to push back against the idea that uh, policy staff, committee staff are not 
relying on the congressional bureaucracy because to a T, and I'm not saying Josh was implying that, I'm, I'm referring to some other people who sort of doubt. You know, there's some people who derogatorily refer to legislative council as scriveners, technocrats. Uh, that really could not be further from the truth. And I think we really want to push back against that and make very clear that every policy staff you apply, and I have now, you know, dozens of students who work in Congress, and I bring them back to my class every year, and my students always ask about legislative council, who really drafts the laws? We don't draft the laws. You know, we do the bullet point, legislative council drafts the laws. So, you know, I, I think that um, whatever the thought might have been early, it's legislation scholarship, uh, it's really uh, uncontroverted at this point how much uh, members of Congress and their staffs are relying on all of these different offices across the board. So I think that's true regardless of any uh, shrinking. And in fact, we have a great story in the paper about how New Greenwich was convinced not to abolish legislative council because the staff said, we can't do the work if you abolish legislative council. So who's going to write the statute? So it's a great, uh, a great story in the paper. Uh, public facing. So Jesse and I debated about this for a while. So one thing you could do is have a check the box requirement where Congress says this went through the CBO score or this is, we refer to these CRS reports. We are worried about recommending that because, uh, anecdotally, uh, the congressional bureaucracy has become the most politicized when it's most in the public eye, right? To put nonpartisan bureaucrats, experts in the public eye, the parliamentarians told us over and over that their job gets much more unpleasant when the big rulings they make are on, you know, huge matters of momentous significance, like the Affordable Care Act, they start getting killed in the papers. Um, and that sort of undermines their role as this nonpartisan, you know, decentralized entity and also impugns their credibility. So CBO is largely not really a, uh, a matter of public discussion for many years. And now the CBO is under attack for its scoring methodology. They come out with a score that's favorable or unfavorable to one party and bills are put forward to change, make CBO changes methodology. I don't think we want that kind of political mucking around with the bureaucracy. And so I think Jesse and I have some doubts about whether how public facing we want their work to be. Now, there's a different thing. We can just know about it and talk about it and reinforce it without requiring Congress to say, I relied on this or relied on that. Now, I'll go through this after this uh, a example from King versus Burwell, the second big Affordable Care Act case. So in that case, Chief Justice Roberts goes through the ACA's legislative history, statutory history, and he says, the statute isn't a model of deliberation. That's not right. Right. The statute was extraordinarily deliberated for two years worth of hearings, went through CBO numerous times, went through JCT numerous times. Legislative Council drafted it. Everyone in CRS wrote numerous reports on it. Everyone in Congress had their figure on it. Was it rushed at the end? Yes. Did it not go to Legislative Council at the end and get cleaned up? Yes. But the court does a disservice to Congress to say that a 2000 page law was not deliberate. Right. That contributes to this cynicism. So I think part of this is. The civic education mission that Jesse and I are on, I think I can, and I'm going to include Josh in that mission because his work contributes to that. He's smiling on the Zoom right now, but I'm going to include, I'm going to include him there. I think this mission will go a long way toward that, or hopefully will. I would like to think that the Gray Center is in the business of civic education as well. Absolutely. You're on my team. You're on our team, Adam. You're on our team. Uh, Josh might, Josh might have another question, um, but let me just throw one. I want to amplify a point that Josh made and maybe reframe it into another question. It's this point about uh, the reorganization of Congress around the same time as the APA. That was the subject of another paper at, at the roundtable by Professor Joseph uh, Pastel, now of Hillsdale College, uh, focused on, on the sort of the interesting and too often forgotten uh, historical alignment of the APA 
and the Reorganization Act of Congress. And so, as Josh mentioned, so much of this goes back to the question of oversight. How should we think about Congress's the congressional bureaucracy on questions of oversight and the relation to the administrative agencies? We have a section in the paper we talk about what's similar to standard bureaucracy account and what's different from the standard bureaucracy account. And one thing that's very different, um, in addition to this sort of Congress isn't competing with its bureaucracy. Congress isn't threatened by its bureaucracy, which is part of the standard account of the, the, the sort of straight up administrative law account, is that the heads of all of these uh, internal agencies in Congress are nonpartisan, appointed from within. They don't have the charismatic political decision maker to sort of do the oversight. And the way Jesse and I have uh, theorized this difference is to say that Congress oversees this bureaucracy very differently from the way it oversees the executive branch. It oversees the bureaucracy with transparency requirements, for instance, um, and it oversees the bureaucracy by making some of the inputs just voluntary. So the CBO score and the revenue estimate from joint tax are required to be produced, but the statute isn't required to be within any particular number, right? The numbers are out there, but Congress isn't actually bound by the thing that the numbers produce. So we sort of tried to make uh, some, some linkages between classic bureaucratic theory and, and what's different in Congress. Um, Jesse? Yeah, and I think also to this piece of thinking about um, these offices in dialogue with the APA, you know, I think when we see something like the APA or when we talk in the law about administrative agencies generally, the sort of separation of powers part of our brain lights up. And we know that we're in the space where those debates are relevant and where we're thinking about the balance of power between these institutions. And I think when you hear about the parliamentarian's office or legislative drafters, people in the field don't tend to have that separation of powers part of their brain light up in the same way, right? And part of what we're trying to show is that those two things are much closer to each other. Some of the same considerations are in play. And it's because on a lot of these issues, the expertise has to come from somewhere. And if Congress doesn't build it in-house, as Josh mentioned, it's exactly right. What history has shown is they'll tend to borrow it from the executive branch. And now today, also more and more, they'll borrow it from outside lobbyists. But if you want Congress to still have the expertise to draw on that it needs to write a bill to cost estimate something, um, it either needs to borrow it from one of those places or it needs to make it for itself. And so every time it's made a decision to build one of these uh, offices in-house, it was at the same time making a decision not to poach it from the executive branch. And so these separate separation of powers questions are just always in play. You know what, Jesse's comment leading me to want to add one more thing, which is interesting, which is we also heard from virtually every single internal institution that today um, the fear of encroachment is not as much of the executive branch. In fact, the executive branch now relies on some of the congressional institutions to do a lot of its work, but rather from uh, lobbyists, right? So CRS says, GAO say, they all say, you need us here because otherwise who's Congress going to rely on? It's going to get its information from lobbyists. Legislative counsel too. They're drafting the statutes. Lobbyists might give drafts or suggest the text, but when the pen goes to the paper, they're not the ones drafting the statute. So we thought that was a really interesting twist. MedPAC and MACPAC, the Medicare Medicaid commissions, also told us a very similar story. Josh, I stepped on I stepped in your way when you were about to ask a question earlier. So please go ahead. No, I'll just say that um, one of the things I find so so fascinating about this is is in, is in some sense the continuity across time because um, you know the story that you're telling about 
you know, especially the separation of powers element of this story um, doesn't actually start in the in the twentieth century. I mean, it starts actually with the the effort at the very beginning of the nineteenth century to create congressional committees. You look at under Speaker Clay, right? Why are they creating um, uh, congressional committees? They're they're pretty explicit. It's to try to push back against the Madison administration, whom nobody in Congress trusts. Um, so there's a there's a um, there's a really consistent story here about congressional uh, capacity building and institution building as a means of pushback against uh, executive power. Um, I also really like what, what Abby said earlier about um, uh, the sort of civic education um, uh, uh, mission of this. And it's interesting because, uh, you know, I mentioned uh, the Hibbing and Peace Morse book. That's exactly their conclusion, too, right? Basically, all we can do is just, to, you know, we, can, we can't change the fact that Congress is, is, is the kind of body that it is. All we can do is try to convince the public that uh, they should actually like the kind of body that Congress is. So, um, hey, there's, there's at least the four of us on this, on this Zoom. So. <laughs> On, on that question about civic education, maybe we'll, uh, that's a good next question. Obviously, this, this paper is intended to be and, and will be sort of a foundational work that spurs more research. Would you like to suggest what, what research you hope follows in its wake? Oh, I think Jesse and I are going to do a little more on OLRC. So the, the, the paper is really long. Um, and it probably would be better chopped up in some other papers. I, we want to get the OLRC stuff out there. Um, I think that's a first piece. I think, you know, a second piece is trying to delve a little deeper into thinking about, the, I think, the ways in which what we've learned about the bureaucracy can actually um, be included uh, into, like, common doctrinal theories of interpretation. Yeah, I see. And, and even even beyond your own work, because you're just two people, you can only write yeah. so many articles. You know, what are What are sort of the, what do you think are the most promising little corners of this paper that you think might open up? research um, by other scholars? Well, we already have. Um, well, the Shobi article actually uh, came out from an earlier presentation in which when we presented some of this work. So that's been a great piece of research that's come out of this. I think Jonathan Gould has a piece in the Yale Law Journal on the parliamentarians canon. So, you know, we're just delighted. You know, if we had, if younger scholars or older scholars, any scholars, start taking each one of these institutions and giving a deep dive. The purpose of this paper was not to do a deep dive into any one institution, right? It was to do sort of a high-level gloss, to sort of throw the idea into the mainstream. I mean, I would personally would love to see 11 follow-on papers about each of these institutions and talking about, you know, ways in which, um, ways in which, uh, you know, in a much more nuanced way, each institution operates. I'll say something else that's also really interesting. So in the national security space now, um, there are some articles coming out saying, well, Congress needs to have some more expertise. Congress needs to figure out, you know, how to draft national security statutes, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, all of these calls that Congress needs its own special agency or its own special committee, you know, to beat back against the executive branch, which people also say in the monetary policy space, all across academia, people are saying Congress needs more power to fight back against the executive branch. Where's that power going to come from? This paper, I think, lays a foundation. It can come from internal to the committee staff, you could build up committee staff, or it could come from these sort of external agencies. Joint tax, MedPAC, MACPAC are examples of independent commissions, institutions, agencies that are helping Congress be more expert, right? The alternatives to build in the political staff. And the question is, as you start thinking about other ways to strengthen Congress, um, you might think about the structure of what kind of institutions you're creating. I think hopefully this paper will give people something to think about. Maybe we'll end on this. Um, and it might be a really dumb question, and so I apologize in advance. Um, but earlier, p- people referred to the, sort of the debate 
Congress and it or a they. Um, when the Gray Center was brand new, before it was even called the Gray Center, and Naomi Rao was running it, she wrote a paper on the collective Congress, thinking about these issues. My question is this. There's Congress as an institution. There's the Speaker's office, the Senate Majority Leader. There's the committees. There's all, there's all of the, the individual members' offices. When we think about the congressional bureaucracy, who do they work for? Who's their boss? And, and what does that tell us about the nature of the institution? When you talk to these offices of Congress, that they are the guardian who's looking out not just for their constituency, not just for their committee's turf, not just for whatever sort of subset um, partisan actors within Congress are encouraged to focus on, but to think long-term about the institution and to give the answers that they think their expertise can use to make its lawmaking better. Um, and so, so that is the answer they will give you. And where that places them in terms of the is Congress a they versus an it debate, as, as Abby mentioned, that they're in an interesting um, space here where Congress has structured them and encouraged them to think of themselves as the guardian of the collective institution of Congress and to produce outputs that come out with, with an imprimatur of Congress that the work of, say, you know, a statement on the floor by an individual member of Congress does not necessarily have. And so, well, the full Congress does not necessarily sign off on each of their work products, um, their creation, their the enabling of these offices to produce the work they do and the green light to make the public outputs that they do does come out with a sort of different imprimatur and we think a different kind of authority to speak um, for the institution in a way that the traditional they versus it debate of either you're just Congress or you are a, a lone member, kind of, you know, that that dichotomy kind of misses. So I agree with Jesse. The uh, Everyone interviewed thinks that these institutions, policy staff and non-policy, serve the institution, the long-term memory, you know, and part of the internal separation of powers point that they are telling us, we're serving the institution. We're decentralizing power so it can't get in the hands of any one speaker. We're not a parliament. You know, we don't have someone that's controlling everything. So I think that's important. Um, the other thing I wanted to say about the they, not in it, I'm really glad you mentioned it because um, it's an incredibly important question in terms of defending the value of the work. So there are a bunch, growing bunch of people who have arisen uh, in reaction to people who are the civic-minded among us, who are saying that we can't possibly go down this road because it's just impossible to think that Congress has any kind of collective intent. So I want our, this work to push back very hard against that set of assumptions, in part because these offices and their work product are put into motion thanks to Article 1, Section 5, which gives these House uh, control over its own procedures, and the authorizing and enabling statutes in Title II of the U.S. Code that gives all of these institutions their life, right? So Congress collectively acts in the way that Congress can act most collectively, by enacting laws and voting on them, creating these institutions, and then telling them what to do. And then Congress gets the outputs, and then it acts. I don't care if someone agrees with the parliamentarians ruling one way or the other, but it matters that the parliamentarian says, if you want to pass the reconciliation, you got to cut this language. And they cut that language. So uh, I do think that this account buttresses the idea that Congress sometimes can act collectively. It, it supplements the idea that Congress's rules are a collective way of acting and Congress's institutions operating under those rules are a collective way of acting. 
Josh, would you like the last word on this? Uh, sure, just a, just a couple quick points on that. So one is I, I really like um, uh, the point that Abby just made about this sort of demonstrating a way that Congress truly can act collectively, right? This ties in with uh, some of my colleague Vic Nurse's work, right? About, you know, how do we know where collective congressional action is? Well, we look at Congress's own procedures and, and those procedures, you know, uh, uh, Glock and Cross have now shown us, include um, the, the institutions it creates. I also think the fact that, you know, as Jesse was saying, that, that, that they perceive themselves as working for Congress as an institution and being the guardian of congressional prerogatives provides an interesting answer to, um, you know, claims that, uh, well, you know, Congress is always too short-sighted. There's nobody, you know, there's no equivalent to OLC, right? Everybody thinks OLC looks out for the long-term interests of the executive, but there's nothing like that in Congress is a story we, we hear a lot. And I think this work really pushes back against that and shows that there is the, the, the equivalent of that there. Um, and then the last thing I want to point out just on, on this is uh, something we haven't mentioned yet, but the um, uh, House Select Committee on, Modern, on the Modernization of Congress, I think, has been taking a lot of these ideas about congressional capacity really seriously. Um, like the 1946 and 1970 Reorganization Acts, the, the work product of the Modernization Committee has been sort of strikingly bipartisan. Um, and I think that presents some real sort of hope for the future that Congress is, uh, in a bipartisan way, interested in capacity building going forward, um, hopefully including... Uh, the, the the entities that, that Abby and Jesse are talking about in this truly fantastic uh, uh, generative work. What a hopeful and happy note to end on. I want to thank all three of our guests today, Abby Gluck, Jesse Cross, and Josh Chaffetz for joining us. Um, again, the paper, which is available on our website, the Gray Center's Working Paper Series, it's titled The Congressional Bureaucracy. I know the paper is due for for final publication fairly soon. And so uh, please look for it. And the UPenn Law Review. And the, sorry? It'll be coming out of the University of Pennsylvania Law Review in the next two months, probably. Wonderful. Well, yeah. I hope it's, uh, it's widely read and widely cited. Um, thanks again to everyone. And thanks to our audience, as always, for tuning in. Please tune in for the rest of this mini-series on Congress and administration. And join in for the next episode of Arbitrary and Capricious. Mm-hmm.